Hello, welcome to Encounter Church. I'm so glad that you are here today. Before we jump into our series, Relentless, I want to bring you up to speed. Um, We're really excited as society is beginning to kind of pivot and um, slowly begin to return back to a pace, Lord willing, um, in the next few months um, as the state guidelines are starting to slowly shift and in the next few weeks we believe will shift even more. Um, It puts us in a position to be able to say out loud to you that um, Encounter Church will have on-site Easter services. So you can feel free to high-five, applause, break into like some kind of like soccer chant on your couch right now or in your car. I fully support that. Um, but here's where I need you to step in with us. You see, the challenge is, is that there's still um, pretty um, limiting restraints because of the state guidelines. That in order to stay safe, in order to follow what the state has laid out for places of worship, we have to severely limit the number of people we allow into our auditorium. It also means that at this time, we can't allow preschool and elementary kids to move back into their environments for Easter service either. So we were in a tight spot to either say, do we, um, do we either not have an Easter service or do we um, do Easter services the way we have done them before and said, well, maybe there's another way. Maybe we can hold shorter Easter services, um, that the less time in the room wearing a mask, the safer it's going to be anyway. And by having a shorter service with some elements woven into um, the time together that kids could be present with families in the room. And so um, in order to plan for that, as we think through what that would look like and the implications for creating a nursery and creating a space where kids like under the age of three would have a place to be while you and your family are in this room. Um, We've created a survey, um, encounterchurch.com forward slash survey, because we need to know how many of you would be willing to show up for service. And we need your honesty. If you are like, nope, my couch is where I'm going to be, we fully support that. But the more that we know that, the better it puts us in a position to figure out how many services we actually need. As it stands, there's about 40 responses, and it's been super clarifying for us to get an estimate. And the goal is that this week, around Wednesday, we're going to be releasing a seating map um, and a ticketing service that's going to go out through the email um, service we use and will show up on our social media feeds the day after it goes out in email. And when that system goes out, the registration, the number of services is going to be determined by this right here. And so the more of us that respond to the survey, the better we can anticipate the number of services we'll need. And unfortunately, because of the limitations, it will be a registration ticketing service. Um, People will not be able to just walk in through the doors. Um, You'll have to pick your seat. It'll be like going to a sporting event, except so much better. (laughs) Um, That you'll pick your seat, and you'll have a reserve spot for you. And if you have a child under the age of three, you'll be able to reserve a nursery spot for them as well but it's all limited. So that's my one ask before we jump in today is make sure you do this if you haven't so that Wednesday, what we send out, we can be confident uh, because we really are excited. Our team is excited. We've missed you. So, um, but that's a few weeks away. So let's jump into today's series um, called Relentless. And over the course of this month, we've been looking at what does it look like to experience a faith that looks a little different, that, that's not dry, that's not um, unproductive, but a, a faith that's actually growing, that's vibrant, that's alive. 
And to jumpstart, I want to um, show you a picture that would be instantly recognizable by my son who's 18 months old. He would be able to probably tell you at least, like he was doing this morning when we were reading books, that this is a cock-a-doodle-doo. Um, this is what many of us would instantly say is a chicken. Now, I'm strange, and I came out of a biochem world, and so I'm fascinated by chickens. I remember being a little boy, and my neighbor actually kept them, had them in this huge chicken pen. And the thing that blew me away as a small kid was I would watch him walk into the chicken pen to feed them, and they would all scatter. And you know, at the time, you'd have to watch out for foxes or anything that would kind of sneak in because they would try to kill them. And it was like, why can't these things get away? They have wings. Why can't they fly? Because in my world, in my mind, as a small boy, if you had wings, wings equaled flying, not frying, right? But for a chicken, that's exactly what their wings equal. It doesn't equal flying. It equals frying, and really good frying, too, right? And so why do chickens stay stranded on the ground when they look like they have everything attached to them to take them straight into the sky. It's actually fascinating. You see, the picture I'm showing you right now is not a chicken. This is a southeastern Asian red jungle fowl. This is the grand, great, 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 great grandparent of the chicken. This bird can actually fly short distances. If you were to walk through a southeastern Asian jungle, and you were to go through brush, you would likely come across this creature. So how does something that was made to fly end up have wings that only get fried? It's because somewhere about 2000 BC, people started taking these birds and started trapping them inside of cages with tops. They began to feed them, overfeed them, breed them, overfeed them, breed them, until eventually what they developed was no longer reflective of the southeastern Asian red jungle fowl. It was now what we would call a chicken today. Because its wings, its muscle, its mass had gone beyond what its wings could actually support. See, originally that jungle fowl would sit in the cage and was constantly confronted with the reality that it, it couldn't fly. And that original thought eventually became what we consider its defining trait today in the chicken. And the reason when I was working on this message, this came to mind is because in some ways, I think we suffer from a chicken complex. See, your faith was intended to soar. Your, your faith was intended to fly. But for many of us, especially in the area that I want to talk about over the next two weeks, our faith doesn't soar. It struggles. And so how do we become a people of faith who actually soar? And to do this, I want to talk about one of those areas where many of us experience more of this life, the barren, than we do the bountiful. And it's in the area of prayer. Prayer is something that maybe, even if you didn't grow up in a, an overtly religious house, you probably knew a little bit about prayer from growing up, because no doubt at some point in your life, you heard someone pray. 
You see, what happens is even if you did grow up in a religious context, even if you did periodically attend some type of religious service, you probably were exposed to to prayer, and you probably even grew up praying a little bit. But oftentimes, our prayers don't grow up with us. That the prayers, the way we prayed when we were little, become the same way and the same prayers when we get older. You see, we grew up praying, but our prayers never grew up with us. And if we're going to be people who have a relentless faith, who experience rich, vibrant, bountiful movement of God transforming us with hope and peace and joy and faithfulness and gentleness and goodness in our words and our ways, then we have to learn how to pray. This should make you feel a little bit better that this is not something that is unique to us in the 21st century. This is actually the same struggle that Jesus' followers had. They spent enough time with Jesus that after watching him, in fact, Luke 11, 1, it says, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he'd finished, one of his disciples said, Lord, teach us how to pray. They're watching Jesus pray, and they're like, I don't pray like that. I can't do that. It's like that moment when you, you think you know how to do something and then you get around someone, like our musical team, like I, I, I think I know how to play guitar, and then um, I watch them, and then I'm like, nope, clearly I have no clue. I'm going to go back to the kazoo because that I could jam to, right? That this is what they're happening. They're watching someone who is really gifted, someone who actually knows what they're doing, and they're like, hey, Jesus, teach me how to do that. Teach me how to pray. It's not something that you or I have probably asked another adult, male or female, in our life. But his disciples were so moved by how Jesus did it that they concluded they must be doing it wrong. Because they didn't have that type of relentless prayer. They didn't have that type of life in their words. And so Jesus, in, in a moment with his followers, looks at them and says in Matthew 6, a section of teaching on prayer that's considered to be one of Jesus' most famous prayers. Even though there are multiple times throughout the four biographical accounts of the life of Jesus that we call the gospel, that we see Jesus pray, this is the one prayer that people jump to and recognize the quickest. And it's important before we jump into Matthew 6 that you realize that Jesus was responding to the culture. Jesus was responding to the moment that they were in. These were people in the first century, like us in the 21st century, who had seen prayer done a certain way. And this is what Jesus wanted to clarify that day. And he says it through this way. He says, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go in your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Then he goes on again. He says, and when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need even before you ask him. See, Jesus is responding to the type of prayer that his followers had seen. He's responding to what they have noticed. The public street prayers, 
Because in that day, it wouldn't be uncommon to walk through the street of Jerusalem and see an individual who's wearing um, a robe and very distinct kind of physical markings and like apparel, boldly, eloquently praying for all to hear. It was, it was a little weird for us to think about that, but that was the norm back then. Or to kind of stumble into a prayer, kind of maybe to walk through a temple of a Roman God and to hear people kind of going on and on and on and on and on to the Roman God to get them to do what they needed, whether it was the, you know, the God of fertility trying to help them have a better crop that year or the God of war helping them to give victory in a battle. And the idea is the more you talked, the more you babbled, the more you got the attention of the God you were talking to. But this is why Jesus starts here is because Jesus doesn't go immediately to what you should do. He wants to clarify what you should not do. It kind of reminds me of The Little Mermaid, in fact. There's this scene in The Little Mermaid that uh, Ariel, who's The Little Mermaid, has this obsession with human artifacts. She collects them from shipwrecks and things that fall in the ocean, and she has no clue what they're for. And fortunately for her, she has, I believe, what is an albatross as a guide. She will swim up to the albatross with her little finny friend and will hand him objects and he will tell them out of his infinite wisdom of human interactions what these objects are for. And so one time she swims up to the surface and she hands the albatross what we would call a fork. And he says, oh, a dinglehopper. She's like, wow, a dinglehopper? He's like, yes. You know what a dinglehopper is for? And she's like, no, what's a dinglehopper for? A dinglehopper is what humans use to make their hairstyles amazing. And he grabs the dinglehopper, and he sticks it in the top of his hair, and he twists it, twists it, and he pulls it, and his hair poofs out. And she's just sitting there in awe. She's like, wow, a dinglehopper. And the reason... What Jesus is doing reminded me of the Little Mermaid, besides the fact that clearly I need counseling, is when you don't know the reason for something, it's easy to assume it doesn't work. If you don't know how something is supposed to work, then it's really difficult to know if it's working. And I think one of the challenges and what Jesus is doing specifically in this moment is he's showing them this is not how this is supposed to work. This is not a dinglehopper. This is a fork. It has a reason. It has a purpose. But before I get to that purpose, Ariel, I want you to understand it's not for doing your hair. It's for picking up food. That when you don't know the reason for something or you have the wrong reason for something, it's a whole lot easier to assume it doesn't work. I actually think this is one of the reasons people think prayer doesn't work. Because I think that we're not too far off from Ariel. That what we call a dinglehopper, God calls a fork. And how do I know that? Well, one of the things that's interesting is that Jesus, while the practices may not be relevant that he's showing, you and I are not journeying our way onto the street to hear some individual who's dressed up, praying loudly with eloquent words. Nor are we walking into temples or religious settings and hearing someone kind of going on and on and on and on and on. The principles do, though. 
What Jesus is essentially saying is like, look, there is no secret code. There is no bonus points. There is no performance to prayer. Eloquence and sequence don't matter. The quantity of your words don't matter. If you have a collar, you have degrees, you have robes, their words don't count more than your words. They don't have a special connection with God. They don't have like some proverbial red phone in the White House. They don't have a red phone. I don't have some secret connection. People are like, oh, would you pray for me? And I'm like, I can, but you know that like, I don't have like some multiplier effect on my prayers. I don't have a special phone that I talk to God with. Like, Jesus is trying to destroy and deconstruct the wrong ways people think about prayer in his day. Because that's what they thought. Well, God doesn't want to hear from me. I've got to go to this place and do probably what they're doing because they're all the professional prayers. Right? Because it happens when I go to eat at people's houses back when people used to do those kind of things, right? And um, one of the reasons I don't like for people to know that I am a pastor is because when I sit down to eat with people, one of the things they'll do is like going back to elementary school and kind of playing nosies. Um, they're like, oh, you're a pastor. You can pray. Like, well, you're an accountant. You can account, right? But I still do my checkbook, right? Like, um, okay. They're like, you, you're the pastor. You should pray for our meal. I'm like, well, let me pull out my special, like, food blessing card here. Right? Like, it's one of those things where people still do that today. And the reason I know that is because people treat me that way. And I secretly don't like going to meals because it's so weird for me. Like, I like talking to God, but it's not my profession. I talk to God out of the reason that Jesus is about to show us, not because it's what I professionally do. And the freedom that Jesus brings in this moment is that, like, there's the eloquence, the quantity of your words. There is no secret code or... There's no certain sequence of any kind of like pray this way, then pray this, then pray this, then pray this that makes an, or unlocks God somehow like prayer is some kind of divine ATM machine. And this is critical if we're going to move towards and foster that type of relentless faith because we have to know what prayer is for. And this is what Jesus then moves to. He says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's half of it. And before I move through all of it, which is why I'm taking two weeks, it's really important to understand why Jesus starts with this. Maybe, in fact, you've been exposed to this prayer so much that you've kind of memorized it and you can just say it without even reflecting on it. And my concern for the prayer that Jesus teaches is that we can fall into the same trap that the first century prayers fell into too. It becomes rote, it becomes memorized, it becomes rehearsed, it becomes what you do instead of realizing why you do it. And so Jesus teaches his disciples, well, okay, here's how you do it. Here's how you should pray. Our Father, 
in heaven. For his disciples, for his followers listening that day, it would have blown their minds to hear him say what he said. The fact that he begins with our Father, okay, God was infinite. God was the creator, the sustainer. God was the fighter, the, the general, the commander, the Lord of the armies, the, the I am that I am. God was all of those things, but at no point in Jewish theology had anyone ever started a prayer to God with the words, Our Father. In fact, if you were to flip through all four biographical life accounts of Jesus that we call the Gospel, and you look at how Jesus prays, you'll find that Jesus starts every single prayer with this, Father. And we have to realize this isn't some religious construct. Like sometimes people, because of certain family traditions, or um, even when I talk to other clergy coming from different faith, Christian faith traditions, they'll call me Father, and I'm like, time out. Nope. Nope, no paternity test is going to prove that. I got two kids, right? I got two children, Ella and Henry, period. Not your father. I love you. I'm faithful for you, but I never will be your father. Only those two people can call me that. And Jesus is beginning his prayer by taking not a religious construct, but a relational construct and looking up to heaven. And I think we can miss how radical this was because every other time it was I am walking into the presence of the infinite one and I am kind of having this interaction with him and I'm hoping he hears and I'm hoping he responds and I'm hoping he likes me and I'm hoping, you know, all of that hope kind of walks in the door but there's no confidence. And Jesus is like, no, I want your first words the first way you think about praying to be rooted in our Father. I want you to reorient your way, yourself, when you pray, to talking to your Father who is in heaven. Not to the Creator God. To the Sustainer. To the I Am that I Am. All those things are true. He's going to get to that, but He starts with our Father. Because if we don't start with that orientation, if we don't understand that ultimately prayer is at its heart a relational connection, then we fall into the ditch or to the trap of our prayers becoming dingle hoppers. Where it becomes about transaction. It becomes about request it becomes about needs it becomes about desires it becomes about finding a parking spot or passing that test or getting out of that debt or finding that one all those are good things but it becomes just about the request and Jesus's start around prayer has at this point had nothing to do with prayer request has everything to do about how we relate to God when we pray and here's why this matters. Because you can say, well, Chris, why is the subtlety, does it really matter that this is first, then the, then the, the me portion? My needs, my will, my desire, my, you know, whatever. Yes, it matters intrinsically. 
Because if we don't have this relational orientation, if we don't understand who he is, and I get that this word trips some of us up. Because for some of us, that word is loaded with negative. That word is loaded with um, with memories and moments that make you kind of cringe at the idea that God is our Father. But you have to remember that God is not a bigger version of your earthly father. God is the father who all other fathers are the imperfect picture of him. He's the starting point. He's the OG, the original. Everything else is just a knockoff. And some of those knockoffs are really far off from the original. They're, they're like samples, but they're not even good samples. They're, they're like bad resampling of a song. And, and this is why this is, he says, our Father in heaven, he's like God in heaven, the original Father. The capital F, Father. When you get that relational orientation, when you get that, I mean, personally, like I didn't grow up with a dad and my father had checked out on me. And so the idea of praying to father in heaven can feel really absent if I'm not careful. But one of the things that flipped the way I thought about it when I realized was that, no, I'm not going to allow that guy to read in to how I see God. In fact, how I see God helps me understand how truly Far off, he failed me in my life. It also kind of elevates me in my game with my kids because I understand this principle is still the same, that I'm shaping how they're going to think about God. And I really, really want to be careful about how I do that. He's saying, look, I want you to think relationally. I want you to think personally that the infinite is intimate. Because if you don't, What happens, and this will happen to us all, is that God's not going to answer your prayer. In fact, as a pastor, I'm I'm kind of weird because I think a lot of times what we call prayer requests that have been answered is just confirmation bias. It's like, well, I prayed this and then it happened. It's like, I don't know. I mean, it could be God answering prayer. It also could just be confirmation bias and that you really wanted this and so you go out and find a reason to support your original reason and it's a whole lot better sounding if you spiritualized it and said that God answered the prayer or God provided it for you. Especially if what you're praying doesn't necessarily come in line with what he would want for you. So I'm kind of a little, obviously I'm not allowed to talk about prayer a lot to people um, because I think, and this is legitimate, before becoming a Christian, even as a Christian, that I'm careful about how I think about prayer because prayer can easily be used in a way that's destructive. Because if what happens when no amount of confirmation bias can confirm that prayer request is a yes? And what if it's a no? I, I remember wrestling with this as a, uh, like a 14, 15-year-old because I had a huge crush on a girl in my class. And... Like, man, I, I would have, you know, prayed and sacrificed a little food to some kind of little statue to have made her notice me. 
But she never noticed me. It never happened. And with my little immature brain, that without this frame, I would have said, well, God doesn't answer prayer because God doesn't care. And if I'd have lived in that long enough that maybe I would have arrived, eventually maybe God's not even there. But this is why this frame is so essential because this is the train that you ride without that frame. You start to think, well, I really needed a job. I cried out for a job. And I still don't have one. Well, God, God doesn't care. Or I really cried out for God to answer that prayer around cancer, and it's still there. God doesn't care. My marriage was failing, and I cried out to God. And we got a divorce. God doesn't care. And you live in that sequence long enough. Eventually, this thought starts to creep into your mind. Maybe it's not that just God doesn't care. Maybe God's just not there. And this frame protects us from taking this train because, and think about it, how many times were you told no by your parents growing up? I'm going to wager a few. In fact, if you were to record my audio transcripts with my son right now, you would hear, don't eat that, don't climb on that, don't touch that, don't jump there, don't climb there, don't do that, don't eat that, don't say that, don't hit that, don't run there. Right? It's, it is a series of don'ts and no's and Henry, right? I mean, it's just, it's those kind of things constantly. The boy hears no all the time. Now, is it because I don't care? Is it because I'm not there? No, it's because I do care. He's not sitting in his room in his crib having existential thoughts about my existence. He's not sitting in his room having existential thoughts about my love for him. And I get that this is, this is small things compared to the big prayers that some of us have prayed. But the frame is critical. Because I think to my daughter, who has pre-teenage brooding moments right now, and I say no to her. And she may be tempted in a moment Right, say the things that I said. She hasn't, but I said this. You don't love me. I can't go out with my friends tonight. You don't care about me. But eventually, what did I learn as I got older? That actually, it's sort of the opposite. They did care. And sometimes, their care meant that they said no to my request. Sometimes they pushed me into uncomfortable places. Sometimes your parents have almost caused you pain for your good. Again, I, I recognize I'm, I'm not talking about the heavy ones. But the frame is essential 
if we don't go down this train. Because when you start to move through Jesus' way of praying, it actually helps you with the small and the large. When I see God in that relational frame, when I see God as my Father who is in heaven, who is perfect, who knows all, who, who is all-powerful, who hears everything, who's holy and distinct, right? When, when I start with that, it doesn't end there. He's in heaven. He's not on earth in the sense that He's distinct and different. He's not bound by what we're bound by on earth. He's not under this curse that we call life in a broken world. That we, when we start to pause to reflect and pray this way, it puts us in a different posture inside of our heart. Because what do we say? Our Father in heaven, God, you are there. Yes, theologically, you are here, but no, you are distinct and different. You're all powerful. You're not bound by time. You're, you're not tired. You do not get sleepy. You do not get sick. You didn't, you're not trying to sign up for a COVID 19 vaccine because you don't need it. Like, God, you are different than us. You are not a bigger version of me. That when we start to work in that and we say, hallowed be thy, your name, like that hallowed is kind of a weird word. We don't use it a lot. Um, it's a word that means holy and distinct and different and set apart. And we say, your kingdom come, your will be done. There's something happening on the inside that's really important when you start working your way through this kind of prayer. Because oftentimes, we think of prayer as showing up with our will, our request, our needs, many legitimate. And we say, hey, God, here you go. Okay, thanks. And we walk off like, okay, God, can you hit these boxes? Can you check these items? Can you take care of these things? Right? It's transactional. But when you start here, before you get to your request, your heart and your mind and your soul is saying, God, you're in control. I'm not. It's a reminder when we start here that you're not God. Now get it. You and I don't voice that a lot. I've never met a human being that says I'm clearly God. But I've seen a lot of human beings, including myself, who act like that. Who do things that come out of that kind of frame. And this is about us waving the white flag and saying, God, your will, not my will. God, your kingdom, not my kingdom. God, your desires, not my desires. God, you're in control. My life feels out of control. But you're in control. I mean, isn't that what this year has taught us? That we are not in control of our life the way we thought we were in control of our life? Like we were all cruising along with auto, you know, like just cruise control and making appointments, doing things, job, job applications, school, life. And then all of a sudden we get in this wreck called COVID-19. And in an instant, some bat sneezing thousands of miles away stop you from being able to go to your work or cause you to lose your job. Something that you couldn't even see affected everything that you could. 
The fact that when you go your will, your kingdom, not mine, it's a reminder that, you know what, God, I don't even know what's best for my life. So go back to that teenage kind of moment, right? And I had this like huge crush on this girl in my class. And like, I didn't necessarily get taught a ton of prayers. I, I do remember all the prayers I was taught. But one of the ones, for me, 14-year-old, 15-year-old, um, I liked country music at the time. And there was this guy named Garth Brooks, who was this amazing country music entertainer. Um, I kind of have an eclectic music taste, by the way. I listen to all kinds of random stuff. And so Garth Brooks, and he's like, you know, some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. And it was like this song, and I was like listening to it. If you've never listened to it, you're okay. You haven't missed anything in your life. But for me, as like a 14-year-old, 15-year-old, that helped me. Because I didn't have a, a really good view of God. And that, that song kind of was a band-aid that got me through to when I became a Christian and started understanding how God worked. But it was enough of a compelling argument for me to be like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Like, I don't really understand the full perspective of my life because the whole narrative of the song is about a guy who had a crush, who had a relationship, and it didn't work out. And then he sees her 20 years later and at a high school reunion, and he's there with his wife, and he's like, um, and as she walked away, I looked at my wife. And then and there I thank the good Lord for the gifts in my life. And then there's kind of this build. And then it goes, dum, 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 dum. Sometimes I thank God. Bum, bum, bum. There's these strings for unanswered prayers. Remember when you're talking to the man upstairs. And just because he doesn't answer doesn't mean he don't care. Dum, dum, dum. Some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. Like, I was like, oh my goodness, Garth Brooks is so smart. Right? He understands that, like, I don't always understand my own life. And that's a really ridiculous backstory to tell you all of that. But it's exactly what Jesus is saying here. You and I aren't even in the perfect position to understand our life. We don't see how this can lead to this. We don't understand how this period of infertility that you're walking through or how this period of walking with a body that feels like it's about to die or walking through the marriage struggles, we don't see how any of those things work. All we see is a dot in front of us that we feel like is a big black hole that's going to swallow us up. But if every day we start with the posture of God, I trust you. God, you are God and I am not. God, you are in control. I am not. God, you know what's best. I don't. God, your will be done, not my will. Your kingdom come, not my kingdom. Then what we find is it's not a black hole, it's just a dot. And that we keep moving forward and one day you look back and you realize, oh, all these dots have actually been connected. They've actually been taking me somewhere. We go from God doesn't care to God is leading me somewhere. And the problem is, is that we bring this posture. Let's, can I get just get real, 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 real with you? Some of us have prayed prayers, desperate prayers to God that we would have never had to pray. We would have never been in the position 
Because all the decisions in your life, you were a part of them, right? Like you married them, you smoked it, you drank it, you did it, you applied for it, you did all of it. And some of us are in positions in life where we are praying certain things that we would have never had to pray had we started with the posture of God, you you are God, I'm not. Your will be done, not my will. Your kingdom come, not my, my kingdom. That we would have not been in positions of praying desperately because we're crushed by credit card debt. How we stayed in the posture of God, your kingdom come, your will done. What's your will? Your will is that I live within my means. Your will is that generosity, not greed, marks my life. That some of us would be walking in freedom from sexual addiction or from struggles. Had we started with the posture, your kingdom come, your will be done. Instead of my kingdom come, my will be done. That he would have saved us from even having to speak certain prayers if we had started right there. That's why this is not a small thing. This matters. Because everything that's about to flow out of this is flowing from this. And if we're going to experience that relentless life, that relentless faith, then that prayers, the prayer in our life has to begin with who the person of God is. And the invitation that the infinite is also the intimate one who calls us into that relationship. And out of that fosters a posture that says your will not mine, your kingdom not mine. Ultimately, simultaneously, with every time we pray, remembering that we're praying to our Father. And when we say our Father, your will be done, your kingdom come, like here's honestly one of those gut checks for me, and maybe even for you. When I'm praying that way, when I'm starting with your kingdom, your will, if there's certain things I don't want to say to him, if there's certain areas I don't really mean that with him, it's usually a check inside of me that says, okay, if I don't recognize that check, I'm probably going to behave my way into a situation where I'm going to be crying out, God, save the day someday. If I say, God, your will be done, your kingdom come, except for that relationship. God, your kingdom come, your will be done, except for my finances. God, your kingdom come, your will be done, except for how I click on the website or what I do in my time over here. That this is an amazing way of recognizing a disaster that's on its way. And again, I'm not leaning into, and I'm not trying to to press into some of those really difficult moments about, because I recognize that when you pray for a sickness to be removed and it doesn't, it hurts. I've sat with you this year. I've sat with some of you this year who've lost loved ones. And prayers didn't bring them back. But what if it's not a dingle hopper? What if it's a fork? And what if the prayers aren't about the request? 
What if it's not about bringing them back or bringing that back? What if it's about you staying in that posture of recognizing who God is so that you don't move back in your faith? So you move forward trusting that, man, God's in control even when my life feels out of control. That God is leading me even when everything feels like it's leaving me. And that when we start with that posture, when we recognize He's our Father, it actually gives us an ability to experience in our prayer what my kids intuitively understand. My son, when he's hurt, he, he puts his arms up. And when I pick him up, even though he has the verbal ability at this point to start telling us what the problem is, he doesn't start with his problem. He starts with the person. He puts his arms up because he recognizes that there is something more beautiful in the relationship he has with me or with my wife. And it's that there is comfort. That there's presence. And in those strong arms, he doesn't have to be strong. He can weep. And even though most of his problems we have an ability to solve, I think somehow when I hold my son, I get a glimpse of what God is inviting me into with him and my prayers with him. Finding that he does love me, that he does care for me. And that when I start with that posture, like we'll find next week, it can actually make us bolder in our request. And when that bolder doesn't play out, it doesn't turn our relationship colder, it actually makes me want to draw closer to him. Because I know who he is. And I can trust him. Because he's my father who's in heaven. Holy, distinct, different, set apart from me. Who knows all things. Not the small part that I know. Who loves me deeply. Who gave his life for me. So I might walk in his life. And have life everlasting. That's the starting point of prayer. That's the posture of our heart.